Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When you don't, particularly when you got into the daily lives of famous scientists and writers and composers, you begin to see a pattern, which is that they often would work they're uh, for very concentrated periods during the day in a manner that seems often highly regimented and almost kind of anti-creative, but they also spent and took seriously um, their le- spent a lot of time at and took seriously their leisure, and that there was a common rhythm to the way in which they structured their days, whether you're talking about Charles Darwin or Stephen King or, you know, even Dilbert creator Scott Adams. And that recent work in the psychology of creativity and in neuroscience provided some uh, some explanation for why this kind of pattern worked, you know, why it could help make make people who were often super ambitious and working in very competitive fields, just a little bit more creative. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Alex, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it is really cool to have you here. So I actually came across your story because um, I found your book, Rest, on uh, Cal Newport's blog, immediately read it. And it, any book titled, you know, How We Can Get More By Doing Less Work uh, with a subtitle <laughs> was, was, you know, of course, naturally intriguing to me. And it was just filled with gems. But before we get into um, all of that, uh, I want to ask you by starting, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Hmm. Um, well, my dad is a retired college professor now, and he was a Latin Americanist, so focused on uh, Brazilian history. And my mom was um, a teacher for a while and then uh, worked for actually the cigarette company Philip Morris. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but um, what influence did they have on me? You know, and the fact that, uh, you know, that, I did a you know a PhD in history of science and I've been um, a writer and I still you know, will when I have the opportunity spend time in um, you know archives doing research is you know this is this is totally um, totally a product of my upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know I, my dad actually wanted me to be like a doctor or lawyer or something rather than, you know, <laughs> so um, it was my, it, it was in a weird way, my own little bit of rebellion, um, you know, or following, um, or, or following my interests down, you know, a path that was sort of kind of like his. And then, and I think that the, um, uh, the, from, you know, on my mom's side, you know, 
my parents actually are from um, two different parts of the world. My dad's from Korea, so or if, you know, uh, my name is uh, the name Pong is Korean, kind of unusual. Uh, Korean, but anything that's not Kim sort of you know, falls in that category. <laughs> yeah. My mom is actually from West Virginia, okay. and she was one of the first in her family to go to college. Um, you know, her dad was a carpenter. Lots of my uncles are, um, you know, in trades of one sort or another. You know, bricklayers or, or of uh, you know in construction or so on. And so I think that you know. The things that I got from her side, first off, were um, I lived in the South for a while, mm. and so I still even now have a sort of weirdly encyclopedic knowledge of uh, the lyrics of Leonard Skinner as a result of that. But you know, she's also or uh, she was also someone who, because she went to college and kind of defied the norms of 1950s West Virginia, um, partly by. Um, continuing her education, also by marrying someone like my dad. Um, you know, she was sort of a of a, a, a model of kind of productive um, productive rebellion, and she's also someone who I realized at a certain point has or of a really phenomenal capacity to concentrate. And this was something that I saw when I was a kid. We would, you know, she would take me and my brother someplace and like let us run around. Um, and she would sit somewhere and read. And this was often in very kind of public places where this was, you know, when she was often the only person who was sitting there like in the middle of, you know, sort of Tolkien's The Two Towers or you know, or such. And I always thought that that was kind of, I, I knew that was an unusual thing, but it, I, but it is, I realized, sort of one of the things that has been sort of a defining feature of who she is. Hmm. And so I think that that in, in, in kind of a subtle or almost subconscious way, you know, that interest in, um, the capacity to focus as something central to one's not just productivity, but one's sense of self and one's identity mm-hmm. um, is something that I you know, uh, uh, learned from her. Mm. Wow. Okay. So we'll definitely get into the capacity of, to focus because I know that's a big part of, of you know uh, your work as well. And, and I spent a lot of time studying this over the last few years, researching it for my own books. But one of the things that's interesting to me, you know, you have, uh, you know, a partial immigrant upbringing and one that's not. And I'm curious, like, culturally what that is like, because, you know, I mean, I come from an immigrant family, so I have this very much immigrant upbringing. And I'm curious, having the, the dichotomy of the two cultures, like, what is that like um, growing up as a kid? Yeah. Um, well, my mother used. Uh, my mother would sometimes say that um, I came from a family of two non-native English speakers, uh-huh. um, and so you know, kind of growing up in, uh, or if, uh, you know, one learns one learns a variant of English in um, 1940s and 1950s West Virginia, but um, it was pretty different from the English that she had to learn to speak when she or when she went to college. But I think that you know the. In a way, um, both you know, both my parents. The, the serious version of that is both of them saw themselves kind of as, um, or of, you know, sort of outsiders of a sort and people who had to sort of reinvent themselves if they wanted to sort of have the kinds of lives that they imagined would be um, most satisfying. And I think that you know, growing. Okay, so you know. 
Growing up in the South, um, I was generally the only half Asian kid within probably, you know, 20 miles. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think that that, uh, it certainly does require you to develop a degree of sort of psychological self-reliance and resilience that you might not otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's also the case that it, the thing that's been useful for me about it first of all, is that it forces you to um, or learn how to be an outsider. And the question is, can you learn how to do that in a useful way? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I think that or the, the sort of the sort of work that I've done, um, both, pro, you know, my professional work and my and my writing has traded on that ability to to or to be part of a group and to contribute to it while being okay being on the edge of it mm-hmm. or kind of searching you know kind of searching out the perimeter mm-hmm. and of uh, you know and, and being comfortable there um, and i think that this is uh, uh, this is this is something that has in lots of sort of little ways i think kind of def- or of given given shape to the way that I look at the world and the way that I look at problems. Mm-hmm. It's also something, though, you know, it's also something that, um, you know, is not, I think, you know, sort of entirely, you know, sort of challenging or tragic. Um, you know, my, a, a few years ago, um, my daughter was, uh, she was about six years old at the time. And we were driving to, um, we were driving to school and she was talking about having, um, the pot, you know, a potluck in her, in her first grade class. And she said, um, that, you know, I think next time we should have a world potluck. And I, and I asked, well, what is a world potluck? And she said, well, it's like a regular potluck, except all the kids bring something from the place that they're half from. And I said, so what does that mean? And she said, well, you know, I'm half Korean, so I would bring something from Korea. And then she went down the list of her various other friends who, you know, who had, you know, one parent from Russia or Zimbabwe or, you know, various other places. And I realized that this was, you know, kind of her default assumption was that everybody was like this. Right, living in Silicon Valley in California, um, you know, of course everybody has parents who are from these diff- from lots of different places, and you know, not all the same places. And it struck me that this is, you know, or, of, or at that point, I kind of felt like there was an important part of the game of life that I had just won. Um, you know, the fact that she could uh, that she could grow up with that assumption was for me, a real victory mm-hmm. anyway. Um, so yeah, so, or that's, uh, so that's, that's my answer. The end. So uh, the, the sense of being an outsider, um, but, and, and being able to be on the edges while also contributing, do you think that's a, a skill that can be learned and developed? I think so. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, there are certainly, it's the case that, um, kind of having to, Having to develop that without realizing it um, is, I think, gives you, you know, gives you a little bit of an edge, so uh-huh. to speak. Um, but I think that the, you know, or if this is, 
you know, it's not like this is something that's totally inaccessible to everyone, nor is it something I think that um, everybody, you know, that nobody goes through life um, not experiencing at one time or another, right? When you get to whether it is um, if you, you know, move to a new place or, you know, a new town and you are the only person that you seem like the only person there who hasn't lived there their entire life and for three, you know, and whose family hasn't been there for four generations, mm-hmm. or you're the only person from your high school at this college, or the only person in graduate school from, you know, or of, from, um, uh, or from your alma mater. I think that, you know, the thing is that, uh, that we often think of those as things that have to be, you know, that you want to try and move past as quickly as you can or kind of overcome. But there are time, you know, but I, th- and so I think that, um, it may be that we learn less from those moments than we might because, you know, or if we, we think of them as things to be moved past, as mm-hmm. things to be overcome rather than as things that can enrich us. But, you know, I think that, or if we pro- that most of us have enough of those uh, you know, by the time we're adults, so that you know they be, they become experiences that we can look back on and draw something from, um, and so I would say that this is you know that um, sort of more people could learn to develop that capacity than um, you know than probably than uh, than they realize. Mm-hmm. So walk me through how um, you get from, you know, uh, like walk me through the trajectory of your career and the work that you do that and how it, it led to, you know, this exploration of, of this idea of rest. <laughs> um, the So the walk through the career is will feel like a random walk down Wall Street. Um, <laughs> the or if the the trajectory to rest in retrospect looks super simple. Um, so the career basically is. Uh, I studied history of sciences, uh, an undergrad, and then as a graduate student with the intention of being ac- an academic, right? My dad's a professor, so this was, you know, a world I was super comfortable with, you know, sort of, you know, not only could I do the work, but there's a whole, like, culture of, you know, performance and kind of self-presentation that was, like, totally second nature to me. So, um, I went through graduate school assuming, as did most people at you know, the the school I went to, that we were all going to end up like strolling professor at Yale by the time we're 40. And if we didn't, then, you know, our lives were, you know, sort of pointless. Um, I then graduated into what turned out to be the worst um, academic job market in living memory. However, it's for the last 25 years, it's been the worst academic job market in living memory. You know, (laughs) seriously, you know, academics talk about this, you know, talk about a crisis in hiring. Uh And, you know, the thing is that something that goes on for an entire generation is not a crisis, right? That's like, you know, that's like a catastrophe that is, (laughs) you know, that's a seismic shift. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, however, um, so I spent a couple of years, you know, I was lucky enough to be a postdoc for several years at Berkeley and at Stanford, which if you're going to be not fully employed, um, those are wonderful places to do it. Right. And so, you know, I, <laughs> I, was, I did a lot of as a know, Berkeley undergrad. I, I can, I can relate. Yeah. You know, or of, I did a lot of research. I would, you know, and it was, um, I published plenty of stuff. I did all the stuff that you're supposed to do as a young academic. And in a way that made, moving on and 
getting a job outside academia for me psychologically easier because it helped you know it helped me rationalize that or or demonstrate to myself at least that this was work that I actually could do um, having proved that I could then move on um, I then moved to uh, Encyclopedia Britannica in Chicago, and I was managing editor there for about three years. And I got that job more or less totally at, uh, you know, almost completely by chance. Um, I had been teaching at UC Davis, where I met my wife, and had put up one of um, the first course web pages at Davis. And... One of my former students was someone who was the daughter of a member of the Encyclopedia Britannica board of directors. And so when this job came open, um, this guy, Clifton Fadiman, sort of got a copy of the job description, um, passed it on to his daughter, and she passed it on to me. And it was clear that I was was profoundly unqualified for it, but I figured, eh, you know, why not? Uh, Or give it a try. And this was a period where, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, there was a commercial where these two guys are pitching their company, and they're incredibly vague about what it is, and and sort of the bankers aren't getting it. And then they mentioned something about, well, you know, you could get the answer to that on our webpage. And they say, and the bankers all perk up and they're like, oh, wait, you're on the internet? We'd be fools not to say yes to this. Getting a job in publishing, having done a single course or course website, put you in somewhat that position, right? Mm-hmm. You, were, you, were, you were a bit of a unicorn. Um, Britannic at the time was going through a phase of um, figuring out how to shift from being an, a, you know, a print publisher, which it had been with greater or lesser degrees of success, but with uh, you know, commercial success, but with constant critical success for 200 years mm-hmm. to being an electronic publisher. And so it felt like um, I had, you know, I was I was as close as someone um, with a skill set to help navigate that transition as they could find. Um, I, so I was there for about three years and worked through a whole bunch of um, both existing Britannica products and helped develop new ones, CDs, eventually DVDs, um, special purpose websites, and then uh, my wife and I decided to come back to California. We were both California natives, and it was it felt important for our kids to be California natives as well. And um, so I came back to Stanford. I was there for for I was in, there for a little while, though I still have a library card there because I have some generous friends, and it doesn't really cost them anything for me to have a library card. And uh, but while there. Um, Met a few people who worked at um, uh, worked as consultants and at uh, a place called the Institute for the Future, which is one of the oldest surviving futures uh, organizations in really in the world. And started, you know, went to a couple of their conferences, started doing some stuff with them. And after a few months, they realized that. Um, I was now on so many different projects as a freelancer that it actually would be cheaper to hire me full time than to you know keep keep sort of paying me contractor rates. So that was you know that was how that was how I became a futurist, um, and I was there for about eight or nine years, and then decided I needed to take some time off. Um, you know, consulting is it's you know it is. 
it is fascinating work, but it is very easy to overdo it and to burn out doing it. And that was pretty much my story. And but I was at the same time, I got um, an offer to go to Microsoft Research in England as sort of as a as a research fellow. And I am, you know, I did a dis- I did a lot of my dissertation research in Britain. Um, I am married to only the world's most anglophilic American, um, and so that seemed like a great opportunity. So we went there, and I did a lot of you know I did the work that turned into the foundation for my second book and the idea for. Um, my latest book, Rest, and then came back and found another job at a, at another futures group and have been there in various capacities um, ever since, as well as you know, sort of writing, the, pursuing this second life as a writer. Mm-hmm. The answer to the question of how I got to write Rest is that you know, this is, it reflects a set of interests that really are very longstanding. Um, and my my first course in college, I literally the first classroom I stepped into as a freshman in the uh, sort of uh, in the fall semester was a class on the psychology of creativity, and it was and um, it asked some very big questions about. Or if, you know, the nature of creativity, about the psycholo- about its psychological foundations, you know, the relationship between creativity and madness, which is a you know a, a, a subject of enduring interest both in or of, you know, in the in the popular world and among um, scientists and psychologists, and so it started me. It was the it was the course that started me thinking about what is it that makes some people more creative than others, um, or what is it and what is it that we can do in our own lives um, that can help us apply some of the lessons that we learn from you know, Da Vinci or Einstein or the Impressionists or you know, name your favorite creative uh, creative figure or or school of thought. We did not in that course talk about about rest as something that contributed to creativity. And that was something that I only started thinking about in um, during that sabbatical in England. Mm-hmm. And I'd had I'd had the experience there. I really after about we were there about had been there for about a month or so. And we were at um, this little um, slightly creepy coffee house called Clowns of Cambridge, and there are these there are these um, clown puppets dangling from the ceiling. So you know anybody anybody with a passing familiarity with Stephen King's It um, will you know recognize will see instantaneously why this was kind of um, you know it was cute, but it also was really not. Um, so however you know. We were there, I was reading, you know, or if my wife was reading her stuff, and I was, and in particular, I had uh, sort of a copy of a book called Obliquity, which was by the former dean of the Oxford, uh, the business school at Oxford, a guy named John Kay, and Virginia Woolf's book, um, A Room of Her Own. And Kay argues that 
the biggest tasks in life are ones, or in business, are ones that often are very complex, that are difficult to reduce down to a formula or an algorithm, and consequently have to be approached obliquely, right? If you want to build a great business, you don't you don't start off by saying, I want to make a lot of money. You start off by saying, I want to build great airplanes. And success follows that way. Um, and, you know, the money follows as well. And it's only when companies get taken over by you know, the bean counters that things start to go downhill was his, uh, was his basic message. And that, you know, it's – it that planted in my – you know, in my head the idea, you know, okay, big – Tasks have to be approached indirectly. Um, you know, in Virginia Woolf's book, as you know, as as the uh, you know, most of us know, make the case that one of the reasons that um, or, uh, that you know women have not women were not as well represented in the literary canon as men was that they had not had the opportunities to develop literary lives. And that this came down to a matter of leisure, you know, that, uh, you know, that women, that a woman needs a room of her own and some money in order to be a writer. And that for most women, that was of those, those two simple things had not been available to them. They were available to Virginia Woolf herself, which was, and she was quite aware of the fact that, or that, uh, that this was, this was part of. This was one key to her having been able to pursue that career. And it's, you know, and I had spent the last month in Cambridge and we'd had a wonderful time. We'd been able to go, you know, off on weekends to London and go see, you know, or of plays. And I was cycling, you know, sort of through cycling through town and through pasture to the research lab. And I realized I was having this amazingly productive time, but I didn't feel at all rushed or sort of kind of mentally fractured the way that I did when I was in Silicon Valley, you know, in that kind of default state of perpetual um, continuous partial attention, as Linda Stone calls it. And it started, you know, and it made me wonder, you know, maybe this was maybe i was getting so much done precisely because life felt slower because mm. you know because it felt more leisurely and maybe as or if, you know as wolf and k were suggesting um, you know maybe the key to pr- maybe one way to be more productive was not to work longer hours mm. um, but to figure out how to work fewer and that that was you know and that it sort of, and that that approach might yield better benefits than uh, the uh, than the one that says in order to do more stuff you spend more time do, trying to do stuff. That's where the idea for rest comes from. Mm-hmm. And you know, I of when I uh, when I came back home um, and after I'd finished my second book, I started kind of digging into this idea and looking in. The biographies of scientists that I had, and you know, and and other sources, and realized that actually there was a lot of evidence for this. That when you don't, particularly when you got into the daily lives of famous scientists and writers and composers, you begin to see a pattern, which is that you know, they often would work their uh, for 
very concentrated periods during the day in a manner that seems often highly regimented and almost kind of anti-creative. But they also spent and took seriously um, their le- spent a lot of time at and took seriously their leisure. And that there was a common rhythm to the way in which they structured their days, whether you're talking about Charles Darwin or Stephen King or you know even Dilbert creator Scott Adams. And that recent work in the psychology of creativity and in neuroscience provided some uh, some explanation for why this kind of pattern worked you know why it could help make make people who were often super ambitious and working in very competitive fields just a little bit more creative you know and these are people who are kind of like elite athletes right they're in or of you know if you're Watson and Crick for example and you're trying to you know or of uh, puzzle out the structure of DNA mm-hmm. you know you've got Linus Pauling you've got half a dozen other groups working on this um, and it's kind of like being you know or of in the Tour de France right you know a hundred twenty mile road race ends with ends at the finish line with you know first place and fifth place being sec- you know being separated by you know a car length um, so you know these are people who are working in worlds where even small you know small advantages uh, small boosts of their creativity could make a you know could make the difference between giving the nobel prize address and watching someone else give it and so it, it seemed to me that there actually was a common pattern here that could explain how, incor- or if, that explained how to think about rest, how to make use of it, how to practice it. That helps explain how really smart people who have long productive careers um, manage to do, you know, manage to do so much while apparently working far fewer hours than we do. So that's the story. (laughs) Okay. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Um, a lot of questions come from that. I mean, I, I want to do a deep dive into the, the all the main areas that I, I noted down, but I want to ask you one other yeah. question before we do that. One of the things you said that struck me really early on um, in our conversation was that, that you said, you know, when we're able to focus, we have sort of a sense of self that comes from it. And it was so weird because I was thinking about this this morning, um, you know, like the last week has been rough on me anxiety wise, like in comparison to other weeks. And I noticed something this morning, you know, I made a point not to get on Facebook or email or anything. And, you know, and I've been tracking this pattern to see, you know, is this, you know, I've been using an app called Dailyo to track my mood and see how it's correlated with what I'm doing in the morning. And I noticed that I didn't do any of the, the sort of distracting activities this morning. And I did all of the sort of deeply focused activities. And I, I was like, wow, is there a correlation between our happiness and our focus? And is there a correlation between our misery and our distraction? Uh, <laughs> which I figured I had to ask you since you, you brought up that you know, idea of focus. Yeah, the answer is absolutely there is. Um, okay. I mean, I think that there – okay, so um, there have been studies that indicate that – uh, uh, that suggest a correlation between distractibility and increased likelihood of, um, or of not necessarily depression or unhappiness, but mm-hmm. kind of dissatisfaction with how your day is going. Mm-hmm. It is also the case, though, that one of the symptoms of depression is inability to focus, inability to concentrate, and so it. So there are. A couple different indicators that there is a connection between, uh, sort of between focus and mood, but I think it's also you know, and more deeply, there is you know there is that uh, there is that saying um, that you know you are, as William James put it, you are what you attend to. Your capacity to concentrate and what you concentrate on is essential for not only determining for shaping yourself, but for even for humans having a self. And so in all of those ways, I think that um, or of focus and the ability to focus and to draw the benefits from it um, are really essential for helping 
you know, not only helping us have uh, have productive lives, or, or of, uh, but also having um, you know what I think any of us would recognize as good lives or happy lives. Mm-hmm. So keep doing that. Okay, good to know. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely it, it made me really rethink that. I mean, my mornings are pretty rigid as it is, but um, it just made me think a lot about. Okay, wow, I, I really could benefit from spending a lot less time on social media. Yeah. Okay, so you know the really so you know one really simple thing I found is that you know I'm someone I, I talk in the book about people who get up really early to work, uh-huh. and this is something that I started doing myself, and I now. Um, when I'm deep in writing mode, we'll get up at 5 a.m. or earlier, mm-hmm. and right, partly because I am too—I'm a night person. Okay, I spent, you know, f- you know, I was one of those people in college who wouldn't start the reading until 10 p.m. Um, you know, I always assumed that you know it was like at t- you know your best ideas happened at 2 a.m. when you're, you know, when the coffee is starting to wear off. And when you've got kids in a real life, that's kind of a hard schedule to manage. But what I have found is that in the super early hours, first of all, there is a quality to your focus, to your capacity to concentrate that I think is unique. And I think this is one reason that monastics get up to pray or to meditate so early. You know, there is something about your mind at that time of day that is impossible to replicate at any other. The other thing is, for me, I'm too tired at that point to self-distract and nobody else is awake, mm-hmm. right? Not even not even the dogs get up when, you know, or if I wake up at five. And so it is, at a, as a practical matter, you know, this is a space that uh, – it is a space without distraction that is going to, it, it, you know, and that space exists for several hours, and then it's gone for the rest of the day. And so I've learned that the last thing in the world I want to do in that time is check email or you know or Facebook or Twitter um, because you know, or if I'm kind of too groggy and grumpy. Um, and I've got better things to do with my mind at that time and nobody else is going to, you know, there's nobody else around to, you know, like whatever, you know, whatever thing I post. So, um, that's my argument for early mornings. Okay. So, um, I want to get into, uh, the various sections of the book and you broke it down into four hours, walk, snap, sleep, recovery, exercise, and deep play. Uh, Mm -hmm. do you think you could give us uh, an overview of each one? So, um, I think so. Okay. I mean, I think that, okay. So the, uh, the, I think for people who haven't read the book, the key insight here is that, um, some of history's most creative and productive people learned how to use rest in, in their daily lives and in their lives, capital L, um, to help them be more creative and more productive for longer parts of their life. Um, it turns out that many of them, that sort of the most successful of them, um, practiced what I call deliberate rest. And there's this idea, you know, of deliberate practice. Mm-hmm. Um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in Blink. Um, I mean, he draws from this from a study by a guy named Anders Ericsson yep. of conservatory students, mm-hmm. and who argues that world class students 
practice differently than everybody else. They engage in what he calls deliberate practice. Well, it turns out that those uh, that those students also um, sleep more than the average student, because mainly because they take naps during the day. But they also um, spend less time in like goofing off in or engaging in leisure activities, but they're better able to explain why they make their choices and how they spend their time. So in other words, they engage in deliberate rest as well as deliberate practice. When you're really good at this, you can get down to um, working a really, uh, you can uh, about um, four hours a day. And however, those are a really super focused, super intensive four hours. It's a time that is, you know, sort of as bereft of distraction and as um, full of concentration and focuses as you can make it. Um, that's really essential to making it four rather than five or six hours. The other thing is that four hours seems to be about the upper limit that most people can sustain in the course of a day. Um, the conservatory students in Erickson's study were practicing this way for about four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do a kind of more distracted, less intensive work or practice for much longer periods. But this kind of high, you know, this kind of high performance work, you can generally sustain for about four hours before you kind of hit a wall. Right. Um, you know, who knows why it's four rather than something else, but that's a number that keeps coming up. Yeah. Now, the way that you, the way, and so the next question is, how do you go about getting those four hours and how does it relate to rest? Okay. Um, one of the way, one of the most effective ways to do it is to have, is to um, start the work earlier in the day. Um, to have the kind of more tavo or the kind of morning routine that um, that we just talked about, and you know this is and this is important because it creates space in your space later on in your day for rest. Or, you know, if you also have to spend spend time, you know, answering letters, or if you have a day job, um, it's also useful for or for or for that purpose. But it also um, sort of sets you up for a second period immediately after. And this is and what most almost all these people do is. Immediately after this intensive four hours, they go off and they take a long break and they will go, um, you know, most of them will do a long walk. Um, you know, you might also do some other stuff, gardening or swimming or what have you, mm. but it's a couple, you know, but it's a couple hours long. It is apparently not that mentally intensive, um, but it is usually physically challenging. And walking is particularly, you know, or particularly useful um, because it's, you know, it's something everybody can do. Um, but it's also the case that walking turns out to sort of encourage or kind of stimulate, um, stimulate kind of the free association and um, uh, mind wandering that is a kind of uh, at uh, uh, that sets you up for having interesting new ideas, for insights and aha moments. Doing this and working intensively before you go off and go on that long walk 
turns out to kind of fill your subconscious or your short-term working memory with you know, sort of the problems that you're working on with these various ideas, with evidence, etc., and in a sense kind of nudges your creative subconscious to continue working on that problem even while you are, you know, on the hiking trail. It, but basically what you're doing is you're activating or priming um, a high-quality version of a mental phenomena that we have every day. You know, you know that you know, or those moments when you're trying to remember the name of that actress who was in that movie, who was in that other thing, and you can't remember who it is, but five minutes later you're doing something else and their name pops into your head, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it was Scarlett Johansson. Um, this is this is what neuroscientists call the default mode network. Um, working on that problem even while you've turned your attention to something else. And what really creative people seem to do is set up their days so that they have long periods where they are apparently doing nothing, but where they're but where they engage in activities like walks or even like naps that give their subconscious time to do that kind of work on their behalf. And they do that because, number one, they find that it's a way of, it's essentially a kind of shortcut for having new ideas. Um, you know, the, or your, it turns out your subconscious, you know, or if your brain is actually working all the time, even when you think it's kind of switched off, right? When you're, you know, when you're kind of doing something that you think is mindless, uh, your brain is still processing stuff. Um, and what they're doing is they're making that apparent downtime work for them. The second thing is that the best of them also recognize that there are certain kinds of problems that it seems their creative subconscious is capable of solving that they that they're that elude solution by their conscious minds um there is you know sort of Henri Poincaré the great 19th century mathematician talked about this yeah that uh, and he he wasn't the only one i think there was a uh, i think uh Hermann von Helmholtz i think said that you know his that he hated to admit it but his subconscious was almost the better mathematician because it could solve problems that his conscious effort that his con- he, that he himself could not. Mm-hmm. So you know, as a way of you know, it's the it's the kind of mental version of getting that extra hundredth of a second that makes the difference between you know the gold medal and the silver. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of that's the the core of the routine. Okay. And then, you know, naps are important because for, you know, either for some people, they are you know, kind of physically and mentally restorative. Even a 15 or 20 minute nap could be good for you. For some people, um, they become another, another venue in which to have new ideas. Um, the artist Salvador Dali, for example, wrote a whole chapter about his method for kind of, um, surfing that space between being awake and asleep, and how he could sort of surface ideas in the sort of in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then finally, you know, sleep turns out to be super important, both for physiological reasons. You know, it's when your brain does a lot of the repair work that um, and uh, that an overworked, um, sleep-deprived brain cannot, and thereby reduces your odd, the odds later in life of or of you being um, or felled by Alzheimer's or other kinds of dementias. But it's also the you know it's also critical time for during which your brain consolidates new learning, consolidates memories, does all kinds of processing that sets you up for the next day's work. And there are plenty of stories of people who, in essence, kind of solve problems overnight. Um, Linus Pauling, you know, the only guy who, who won two Nobel Prizes that he didn't share with someone else, talked about how he would work and work and work on a problem, and then at some point, he would hit a wall and he would consciously think about it before bed and then go to sleep. And he would do this for a few nights and eventually the answer would come to him. And he attributed to this method some of his most important discoveries about things like um, how to apply the then new um, quantum physics to, or the, to understanding of um, atomic bonds, or there were discoveries he made about uh, sickle cell anemia that, or, or the, the kind of molecular basis the, or mechanisms for sickle cell anemia that he said that he, you know, he didn't exactly dream up, but um, uh, but which he thought, of, but which came to him after this process. John Cleese would would come up with punchlines. Overnight, you know, he said he would work on a, um, he would work on jokes, and he couldn't get the punchline. And if you watch enough Monty Python, you kind of think, you know, they never really came up with punchlines. But um, you know, and he would go to sleep, sort of thinking about uh, thinking about the sketch, and he would say, the next morning, not only could I finish the sketch, but I didn't remember what the problem had been the night before. So. You know, sleep is important both for you know, both for its physiological restorative properties, but also because it can be a place where we, uh, you know, in which or if, uh, our creative minds can flourish. Um, and then I think that you know the other things with you know exercise and deep play, the or the simple the simple story with exercise is that knowledge work is actually a lot more physically intensive and physically demanding than we think. You know, or, or the, you know those of us who, um, you know, who sit in chairs looking at screens, mm. um, it's, you know, it's real easy for us to think, you know, to, or to assume that you expend no calories doing that. Um, but in fact, our brains are really, you know, sort of energy and oxygen intensive. And, the better shape we can be in, the better able we are to uh, order to, to feed our brains, not to mention the better able we are to handle, you know, sort of the stresses of, um, you know, sort of modern careers and working 24-7, you know, sort of being in the 24-7 global economy, etc. The other thing that really you know, I think that the you know the discovery about the four-hour day was some, was one of the things that um, really caught me off guard when I was, was still researching the book. The other thing was seeing how many people had 
really serious, serious hobbies, you know, things that would take them off to, you know, the Swiss Alps for a month at a time or, you know, diving in the Caribbean or, you know, sort of, uh, you know, going somewhere to paint for a week. And it struck me that, you know, in, you know, for people who really valued their time, you know, people who are often in really competitive fields, this seems counterintuitive, right? Sort of, it's, I mean, it's, let's put it this way, it's a very significant expenditure that had to be explained. And it turned out that um, there actually is a, there's a, there's a common pattern here as well, you know, whether it is uh, scientists who are avid mountain climbers or, you know, people like, you know, politicians like Winston Churchill, who um, was a noted amateur painter. And that is that these are people these people select these hobbies, um, select these activities because they offer some of the same psychological satisfactions as their work, but in a very, very different kind of context and, and at a different time scale. And so what this means is that for, you know, for people who really like what they do, but sometimes are frustrated by it. Um, you know, by the uh, order, by the downsides, they choose activities that give them both simultaneously a kind of give them a break from um, a break from the drudgery of really challenging experiments or the work of having to overcome Labor Party opposition to your latest bill. That also give them um, uh, or uh, give them a kind of reward and pleasure that is really important to them. So if you're, you know, if you're a scientist, for example, mountain climbing appeals to you because it's like science, because you have to, you know, you've got this, you've got this gigantic challenge and you break it down into a thousand different little technical problems and you solve each one of them one after the other. The good part is that unlike in science where you can spend years in the laboratory and your results can tell you, well, maybe my, maybe my hypothesis was correct and maybe it wasn't, at the end of the day, either you've made it to the peak or you haven't. So it's, you know, it's, it delivers a very, very clear reward. Um, it's very unambiguous. So you know, it, turned, you know, it turns out that people who have really long careers have these you know, sort of manage to find this deep play, this thing that um, provides uh, both re- that provides both a break from and refreshment from their work, but also a kind of a kind of psychological or spiritual sustenance that bears a striking resemblance to their work. Mm. And so, you know, if you want, and that's really important for people um, working in very challenging jobs, people working, um, people, especially for people who are working in fields where they can't compress everything down to, down to a four hour day. So, you know, like if you are a, you know, a neurosurgeon and, you know, or you run a hospital, um, you know, those are going to be long hours, but deep play justifies claiming your weekends back as your own. Mm -hmm. Um, it often will literally remove you from 
um, you know, from your normal life and put you out of cell phone range. You know, there aren't a lot of cell towers at the top of Mount Hood. Um, and will, and so it provides, it, or if it, it, it creates a kind of valuable buffer um, between you and your everyday work, even as it recharges you and gives you the capacity to go back to work and to do a good job. So, you know, that's, I think, you know, deep play is one of those things that um, really surprised me when I, uh, when I discovered it, but which, you know, uh, I think uh, is really valuable and, and once you understand it, makes a lot of sense. And it's fun to try and figure out for yourself. Yeah. Well, um, wow. I mean, you've packed this up with so many insights. So I have two other questions about this one, you know, you'd mentioned the walks and I, I know that, you know, for a lot of people, their tendency on a walk is to, you know, either listen to an audiobook or listen to a podcast. I, I know that I have, does that defeat the purpose of the walk? Like, does that not, do we not derive the same benefits we would if we, if we do that? And given what we know about the four hours, why the hell do we still have an eight hour work day? <laughs> um, okay. So briefly, I think the only bad walk is the walk you don't take. Okay. And you know, there are walks walking meetings, there are other, and I think that, you know, just the exercise of getting out and letting your, you know, your, your eyes focus on something that's not, you know, six feet away from you and glowing is a good thing. Um, I think if you go out partly with the purpose of clearing your head and then, you know, that's, it's actually good to not take stuff with you and to not occupy your mind. Just let your mind relax, let it wander. And I think it's, you have to trust that things are happening under the hood that maybe you, you are not, you are not conscious of, but which benefit you. And in fact, there are such things. You just have to, you know, you just have to take the leap of faith. Um, you may also, the first few times, have to deal with the fact that you're so accustomed to, you know, whipping out your phone the instant you start walking, you know, and like checking Twitter and stuff. Right. That, you know, you're going to miss that. You'll get over it. You really will. Yeah. Um, you know, as for why we have an eight-hour day, sort of when four hours are really effective, um, you know. We have that because it, basically, um, you know, back in the or if, back in the industrial age, labor people fought incredibly hard to get down to an eight-hour day from twelve hours, and you know, and it actually was the case that you know in the nineteen twenties, people like. John Maynard Keynes, the great economist, and Bertrand Russell, the you know the mathematician and philosopher, looked at patterns in sort of work hours and saw how they had declined in the 19th century and in the 20th, and said, you know, a hundred years from now, or by the you know by the start of the 21st century, if you keep these you know if you follow the slope, we're going to get down to you know a four-hour workday or even three hours, and. We haven't part. We haven't mainly because I think, um, or if, uh, uh, companies have been have fought really hard to keep that from happening. But you know, I think. But we can see today that there are now there now actually are some very successful companies, um, including software startups, advertising agencies, um, web design firms. You know. Things were, you know, order companies working in some very, you know, like go-getter alpha, 
kind of industries that actually have moved to four-day work weeks or to six-hour days without losing productivity, without losing profitability, and uh, and in and in so doing, um, helped their employees become a lot happier and a lot more productive. So, you know, I think that the you know the sort of the bad news is that there were a whole bunch of sort of economic and normative forces that worked to halt that progress. The good news is that there are signs that it is starting up again and that there is an opportunity to push it along, you know, to begin to make the case that in an era when we can have, you know, or if, essentially supercomputers that fit in our pockets, right? These little rectangles of nearly unbreakable glass that deliver the world's information to you in seconds. Um, in a world in which we have virtually eliminated smallpox and tuberculosis and these other diseases that were you know, scourges of humankind for thousands and thousands of years. You know, a world in which we can talk about self-driving cars and you know, or of uh, inexpensive solar power, that the idea of a four-day or a four-hour workday should be something that we can take seriously. Um, and I think actually it really is time for us to look seriously at, at how we would go about creating a world in which that is the default. Hmm. Um, I think that would be a great thing. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah. Um, well, this has been amazing. I mean, you've packed it with so much insight. It's insane. Um, so where can people uh, find out more about you, your work in the book? Oh, so I have, yeah. Yeah, I have one other question for you, which I realized no. I forgot to ask you. Sure. And it's how we finish every interview at the unmistakable creative. Sure. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What it is makes, uh, what makes for, unmistakability you know it is i think that you know we all are um we all are the products of our histories or our you know our cultures and our upbringings but i think it's uh, you know but i think that sort of people who both who recognize and are able to do something with the variety of their upbringings, with sort of the are you know, people who manage to make themselves sort of unmistakable. There are some who you know have a little bit of an edge in this respect. You know, people who are you know who have you know sort of parents who are immigrants, or people who, by virtue of their background or or of or other things in their lives, have to be really aware of how they are different. Or you know, and can turn that into a positive, and can and can make it unmistakable. But I think that's you know that um, everybody's life has a lot more diversity in it, a lot more variety in it than they realize. And I think that if you know uh, that becoming more mindful of that, learning how to learning how to draw upon it, um, and learning how it both makes you more unique and also makes you more human, is uh, sort of what makes you unmistakable hmm. awesome um well where can people find out uh more about you your work in the book sure um the book is rest why you get more done when you work less in the u.s it's published by basic books and it is available 
everywhere, you know, or uh, it, online, um, in your local bookstore, as an audio book, as an ebook. Um, I am also on Twitter and pretty much everything else as Ask Pang. Those are actually my initials, A-S-K-P-A-N-G. And uh, finally, the whole bunch of the research for REST actually resides on uh, something called the Deliberate REST blog. And that's www.deliberate.rest. Right before the book came out, REST was, you know, REST became a top-level domain. So, sort of, I dove right in and was able to to get that URL. Awesome. But, you know, I'm one of those writers who kind of live blogs, sort of, you know, what they're reading. Um, and so, there's a whole bunch of the, you know, sort of references to the scientific studies, to the historical studies that, if you're really curious about, um, you can read about in greater depth on there. Great. Awesome. Well, uh, this has been really amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.